Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends podcast. We have just an honored guest here today. I am just thrilled to introduce you to Tim Shriver. He is an American disability rights ad, uh, activist, the board chair of the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, Special Olympics chairman, and uh, currently serving as the CEO of Unite, a national initiative for bringing Americans across divides together in common purpose to address universal challenges that can only be solved together. All right, let's get proximate. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I'm super excited to be here. This is really, really incredible because when I... Um, became the first lady and even a little bit before just really trying to think about what I would do for initiatives and obviously my my backgrounds in education and just went to a trusted friend uh, a mutual friend of ours Tammy Piper who is the um, former uh, education advisor to Governor Herbert and she she and I talked we're good friends and she said Man, I've got some ideas for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do what me. Tammy tells us, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, and it fit exactly you know who I am and what I'm all about. But I, so this is really exciting because she's been working with you at Unite, and for for those of that that don't know you, I think a lot of us do. <laughs> but tell us a little about about who you are, yeah, um, as a person, um, your background. You know, you you have a pretty famous family, so yeah, I do. <laughs> tell us a little bit about I, that. I, 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 almost everyone knows somebody I'm related to. Uh, <laughs> that's that's another way of putting it. But uh, I was raised, you know, in a family. I was very proud, you know, just before. Just after I was born, my uncle was elected president of the United States, and obviously I had two other uncles who served the country in the United States Senate, and uh, my dad was involved in some of the most exciting public policy initiatives in our country's history, the Peace Corps, Head Start, Job Corps, uh, the fight against poverty, which uh, still goes on in our country, and uh, both parties are concerned about it, and uh, he tried very hard in his career to bridge the gap between political divides to bring our country's attention to those who need it most. Uh, my mom then, you know, involved uh, very actively, be- largely because of her sister, Rosemary, who had an intellectual disability, became very involved in science and advocacy for people with intellectual differences, and then uh, created the, the the Special Olympics movement, which I got to work in for, I still work in, uh, for 20 plus years. My own career started in education, where 
I was a teacher and uh, ran after school programs and recognized together with a lot of my mentors that the some of the biggest challenges facing our children were social, were relationships and uh, a sense of separation from others, uh, emotional challenges, stress, trauma, uh, interior pain uh, that, you know, it wasn't that kids didn't have enough time on task. It was that they didn't have enough uh, heart in the uh, and enough safety and enough trust and enough belonging in the system, in the school, in their relationships with teachers. So we created the field of social and emotional learning back you know, the beginnings of it uh, in the 70s and 80s before I got involved and then when we started to build it into a real field in the 80s and 90s because we felt there was a missing piece in education. The, the education of the head, great. We all want our kids to learn academics. But the education of the heart is just as important. Children learn through relationships. Every teacher knows this. Uh, children learn uh, because they are connected to someone who matters to them because they want to please, they want to become a part of something that matters, that has value, that has meaning. So we've got to do the work to build that meaning, that trust, that value in schools. And happily, you know, 95, I guess, percent of teachers now want more social and emotional learning. So my career has been very much focused on children, schools, and and then through Special Olympics, introducing Special Olympics to schools. How can the athletes of Special Olympics not just benefit in schools, but how can they teach? And how do they become teachers of these lessons of the heart, if you will? So, uh, you know, to be here with you uh, as the first lady, uh, to see your focus on inclusive programs, unified champion schools, to see your emphasis on social and emotional learning, you know, it just proves to me that there are great leaders in this country. It doesn't matter what party they come from. Uh, There are people who see beyond the differences and who want to actually get something done. Uh, who want to make a difference, not just make a point. A lot of politics and a lot of what's on the news is, I I dare say, it's just hatred and venom for the sake of it. Uh, It doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, But here we are able to talk about how do we help uh, Utah's children, Utah's teachers, strengthen their social relationships, their emotional health. How do we help children with special needs and non-disabled children learn from each other through the Special Olympics movement here? I mean, so I feel like a kid in a candy store. So I'm really grateful to be here and happy that my uh, contributions to these uh, fields and my, you know, my relatively small but I hope important role in advancing them um, can add value to what's going on with your leadership here. Thank you. Um, I I love your story about your aunt. I think it's it's beautiful. And and so I, I guess the question would be like how. How do you think it's changed? I mean, that was so yeah. like in the '60s when you yeah. when what was the what was the what was going on at that time that precipitated this um, yeah. idea of of really figuring out how to include someone like your aunt who who historically had really been pushed to the margins in a way that. I mean, really, we're almost locked away in some ways. Well, not ways. almost, Abby. I mean, you, we have to, in 1968, uh, the population of people living in institutions was the largest in the history of the country. Mm. So we weren't in a change period in 1968. Institutions were growing. More and more mothers were abandoning their children at birth in 1968. Mm. Not 1938, not 1868, 1968. Almost 200,000 Americans with intellectual disabilities were living their entire lives behind 15-foot-high concrete walls uh, in in abominable conditions. So 
the exclusion, uh, the discrimination, the demonizing uh, that people with intellectual differences experienced. And let's remember the language. It's very painful to say it, but you know, the retarded, the defective, the idiots, the imbeciles, this language, it, I, I almost, it's almost painful to say it. Yeah. But this was common language at the time. Uh, my aunt Rosemary was born in an, you know in an era when the Supreme Court authorized the sterilization of uh, people with intellectual disabilities. So, uh, you know, as we're learning more and more in our country, you know, we have much to be proud of, but we also have much to deal with in terms of where the injustices have been and how we can overcome them. My mom. I think you know it was it was a, it was a powerful combination she felt in her life. She loved her sister uh, because my grandparents, I'm very happy to say, kept Rosemary, my aunt, at home instead of putting her in an institution. So they grew up together, sisters. Um, but as much as she loved her sister, she saw the world didn't, and it infuriated her honestly. Uh, and she had this beautiful combination, which I think our country is trying to understand more and more about it, which is. How can you have anger be used as a constructive force instead of anger used as a destructive force? My mom was angry at the way her sister had been treated, but she was equally determined to create something different and to bring people, even those whom she was angry at, to the playing field. Uh, she brought the doctors who were institutionalizing. She brought the social workers. She brought the experts. Uh, and she said, come see uh, what we're doing uh, in a swimming pool. Come see the track. Come see the soccer game. And they would be kind of dismissive of her. They kind of actually uh, made, made her uh, – uh, sort of treated her as a novelty, like this is some silly thing. Wow. She knew better. She knew that if she could get people to see differently – that things could start to change. So in 1968, the first Special Olympics event was held in Chicago. It was one event. Uh, almost no one in the stands. Uh, you know, it was a huge stadium, Chicago Soldier Field. Some people may know it. In those days, I think it ever had over 100,000 seats. I think there were less than 1,000 people there, so it was empty. But they chose a place to stay, to make a big statement. And the big statement was, we are here. We, the people with intellectual disabilities that you've locked away, you've excluded, that you've humiliated, uh, we're here. We're now standing here in our strength, in our pride, in our determination to show that we have abilities, we have gifts. We're on the playing field, both the literal playing field and we want to be on the playing field of communities and of the life of this country. It launched a, uh, a big change in the world and it's still happening. We still have discrimination. Uh, we still have challenges with covid uh, access to vaccines, access to care, access to intensive care units even. We, we've had our people even this past year turned down um, from treatment because of an intellectual disability. No other reason. I mean, it's unbelievable, but it's true. So uh, we still have work to do, uh, but thank God we've got good people, many, many millions of volunteers who care. And, uh, and so we continue in this work. I don't like to call it a fight <laughs> because that always uh, implies a certain kind of violence. It's a movement. It's a way. It's a, it's a, it's a campaign. More, It's more of a political campaign without an election day. That may sound terrible to you. You just campaign forever, right? <laughs> I, I know. Sorry. I start to have a little, a little bit of a nervous tick when you start saying that. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, no I, actually, that is, that's really meaningful to me, too, because it's really what, um, you know, so, you know, I give away my age, but um, I was going through school in the early 80s and, in, in elementary school, and it was shortly after his IDEA was passed in mm-hmm. First, the first parts of it, 75, 74, 75, and then okay. the later parts when the ADA came along. And IDA, it originally was 94, 142, and then became IDA, and then parts in the ADA. But yeah, the mid, early 70s was the beginning. Yeah. So I, you know, I remember in second grade, so this mm-hmm. is very early 80s, in our community, which is a small rural community in Utah, we had children who had intellectual disabilities coming back to the school after having been separated in the special schools. And so I, because my school, you know, we had all these elementary schools that were little, but ours was the biggest in the community. They brought them. I think that's where they could bring the resources and things Mm -hmm. like that. So all the one, all the kids with intellectual disabilities who were returning to the school came and they were all in my class and wow. um, so that's where I grew up mm. with three kids with Down syndrome that mm. went all the way through my whole school life with me. And I knew them in my community and my mm. church, my faith group. And um, that's where when I got to college, I said, this is what I want to do. Isn't that so beautiful? I think your idea of uh, your mom just truly inspires me to we talk on this podcast a lot about getting proximate. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's exactly what she did. Absolutely. Right in the swimming pool. I mean, my, some of my favorite pictures of my mother in 1962, 64, 66, before even the first Special Olympics Games, she didn't talk to people. She didn't organize. She didn't write. She was in the pool. Yeah. I mean, she was in the pool in her late 80s. Uh, because she just wanted to show people how to do the crawl and how to have that big kick with your legs and how to stay floating and how to have that first chance to swim into the deep end. And she just thrived on proximity. Uh, and, um, and I love the way you've emphasized this, you know, you, to show up, you have to do something, right? You can talk, uh, talking is one thing, but getting close, uh, my, my dad used to talk about this in the Peace Corps. This is a chance to look at people eye to eye, right? Not at a distance, not as numbers, not as races or genders or religions, but as human beings, eye to eye, heart to heart, meet, learn from the inside out, not from the outside in uh, about the life of another. And then it's very difficult, you know, once you really know the tenderness, the suffering, the the pain, the hopes, the dreams, the desire to meet, to matter. Once you know that about another person, it's very difficult to hate them. Yes. Uh, it's still possible to disagree with them <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's very difficult to hate them that's uh, true. i hope yeah i think michelle obama in her book said it's really hard to hate up close yeah yeah that's right so. yeah roll up your window and it's easy to scream at the person in the car next to you but uh um being closer and proximate. Uh, and this is why I think schools are so important, you know, because you, I mean, it's such a beautiful story. You had the, the great privilege, I dare say, yes, of growing up not afraid. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so many people grow up afraid because they're isolated. They're afraid of Republicans. They're afraid of Democrats. They're afraid of 
you know, this religion or that religion. They're afraid of Muslims. They're afraid of Jews. They're afraid of Catholics. They're afraid of LDS, whatever. You know, they're afraid because they, they, they've never had their fear overcome. They've never had the chance, the training, the opportunity. You grew up unafraid of children yeah. with Down syndrome. Uh, it was normal to find friendship, to find collegiality, to find a lunch uh, partner, to find someone in the hall, to find someone in your classroom who had Down syndrome. This is the big challenge of today. How do we bridge the fear gap uh, that is so rampant in so many parts of our country uh, and in our communities? How do we bridge this gap with a new commitment to getting proximate? I love that. Um, And we are going to dive into this new book, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's called The Call to Unite. Um, it's one that you uh, put together, and um, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that when we're when we come back. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than eighty thousand Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back here with Tim Shriver, and we want to talk about um, the call to unite, voices of hope and awakening. Tim, what precipitated um, the, this book. I mean, it's, it's a real different book. It's not a yeah. fiction or a nonfiction, but really a, a compilation of people's thoughts. It's, it's a compilation of the most authentic version of all different kinds of Americans offering their personal view of how to bridge the gap, how to cross divides, how to restore some sense of respect and dignity in our culture. And then you say to yourself, well, what is it, a religious book? Well, some might say there's some religion in it. Is it a political book? Well, there are politicians whose voices are in it. Is it a book of artists? Yes, those two. Children? Yeah, we've got them. Storefront clerks, nurses and doctors? Yes, all those artists. You know, so the the point I think, Abby, is that, you know, there's a story of us that doesn't get told very much. And that is that when we're asked to be our best. We have the capacity to cross all these divides. We have the capacity to find healing within ourselves. We have the capacity to offer compassion to others. We have the capacity to apologize and seek forgiveness for the times we've made mistakes. We have the capacity to imagine schools being differently, uh, imagine our parks and recreation facilities, imagine our relationships being differently. This book, it's like a, I find it like a companion. I, people think I brag about it. I'm not bragging. I only edited with my colleague Tom Rochert. Uh, the contributions from Oprah or from Eckhart Tolle or from Pastor Rick Warren or from President Bush or from Jewel or from Elizabeth Gilbert or all these people, it's them. It's, yeah. it's like a whole bunch of friends uh, you know, sitting at your bedside table or at your kitchen table inviting you if you've been through, as Pastor Rick Warren says, this tsunami of grief we've all been through, inviting us to open up, share our stories, and uh, rebuild a sense of possibility and hope. It was really an incredible read for me because there was such a diverse 
uh, voice mm-hmm. <laughs> voices. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I guess that was where I was at. There was people that I knew people that I didn't know. Um, it, it was just so unique. Um, in the forward, you said many of us saying that the virus brought us together. And in some cases it's true, but in other cases, the virus split us apart. And that's been instructive because in places where we are united, we are better in area and in areas where we are divided, we are worse. The virus makes the case in a way almost nothing has the way the only way to win is to unite. So I think this is true. What did you see in the past year that illustrates this? Well, I, th- I think uh, if you look at, for instance, the vaccine, uh, I-, I talked to the head of, uh, of Johnson & Johnson who entered into a partnership with Merck to produce their, vi- their, their vaccines. Now, some people don't like vaccines, but take the point. Uh, two companies who are fierce competitors had to work together to save lives. Uh, all of these companies, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, they had to work together in order to save lives. Not only did they have to work together, but so too did the National Guard and the military services. So too did uh, the nurses and the doctors. Uh, I got a, 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 a test this afternoon from an Air Force uh, guy uh, you know, here in Salt Lake City. Uh, that had to be set up with the cooperation of the governor, with the Department of Health, with education. So when, when we got it right, we did it together. Uh, we, we created the COVID collaborative out of Unite, which has, you know, Governor Dirk Kempthorne and Governor Deval Patrick, Republican and Democrat, working together. They built the biggest public service campaign, uh, maybe in history, to get people to feel comfortable getting vaccinated with President Bush and President Obama and President Carter, uh, uh, you know, President Clinton all talking together. Right. So, you know, not everything is going to re- result in agreement. But when we have big problems that we need everybody for, we have to find ways to establish enough respect. And I think, you know, the, the, look, uh, as long as this virus is, exists in any human being, it's a threat to every human being. So there is no gated community uh, that will stop the virus. Yeah. There may be places where people are quite angry at one another still. And for that, my heart breaks. And I, I, I still think... You know, your husband and you and others, you know, will have to continue to help us through these differences. But, um, you know, we are only able to beat this virus if we all do it. So, you know, you, I could argue from a spiritual perspective we're all interdependent or from a psychological perspective that relationships are important or from physics uh, that quantum theory says we're all boundaryless and so on and so forth. But the virus – you don't have to argue. Uh, one person, any one of us, can lead to the death of another. Uh, and one person sick makes it a risk for every one of us. Six billion people on the planet can be threatened by one and vice versa. Yeah. It's it's incredible to realize, because I don't think, obviously, in anyone of our lifetimes, that something has reached basically every human on the planet. That's right. Which I think is heartbreaking too. It's incredible. What do you think? I've thought about this a lot in our children, what our children have seen. Um, uh, Yang Lan said, uh, children's stories can give us perspective. Yeah. I, I wonder what we've taught our children through this 
this time? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I wish I could say I know, but time will tell. But I think, I think some, uh, we have tens of thousands of COVID orphans in our country. Yeah. Uh, will we respond to them? Will we offer them a places of welcome in our schools? Will, will our community centers, our foster families, our adoptive families, our extended families, will we let them know that they still have a place of belonging in our country? I hope so. Certainly we need to try. Will our schools uh, respond to the trauma so many children, the fear, um, the extraordinary anxiety about the future? Is my mommy safe? Is my dad safe? Am I safe? Will we respond with the kind of listening and compassion that we need? I hope so. Um, We have a chance when we reopen, as we reopen, to build back in a way that strengthens children. You know, after great catastrophes, World War II, nothing could have prepared anybody for the decimation of World War II, but the Marshall Plan built a stronger Europe afterwards because right at the point of the turning point, uh, massive resources and a strong commitment to rebuilding was there. That's what we need. We need a Marshall Plan for our children. Mm-hmm. We need a Marshall Plan for our teachers. Uh, we need a sense in which our businesses, I think, you know, certainly the government's uh, agencies will offer resources, financial resources, but they can't do it alone. We, we need community organizations, families, teachers, schools, youth-serving organizations, businesses. We need them all to bring back a certain compassion Maybe I dare say a little bit more gentle on each other. Is that is that sound uh, uh, kind of woo woo? I hope not. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a little more gratitude that we're still here. Yeah. You know, Jewel writes in the book about gratitude being her. She calls it a hack for anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety in our culture and our children. Uh, Maybe gratitude, uh, a gratitude practice. She shares hers. So does Amy Grant shares her meditation. How do you strengthen your sense of being safe? She shares her beautiful meditation. My gosh, I, I almost brings me to tears every time I read it. I must have read it 20 times. Um, the beautiful meditation from Amy Grant, the great singer. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but I hope we, we do, you know, Daryl Green, the, the great NFL All-Pro writes, he said, I plead with you. This is what, the guy who was the fastest person in the NFL when he was active. I plead with you, he writes, do not exit this time in the same spiritual way you entered it. Mm. This is our chance to exit differently. Uh, asking slightly more fundamental questions, maybe being a little more patient, a little less frantic, I hope less distracted, uh, maybe a little less connected to the TV. Can I say that? Yes. <laughs> a little less uh, addicted to news and to all of our various feeds and maybe just a little more present with people in the room, in our own homes, in our own communities, uh, the front porch, maybe not just the back porch of our lives. Oh, that is amazing. I, you know, I hope to do the same as we, as we come back. I I know, you know, as a family, we were together um, really unexpectedly. We had a, a, a kid in college, our oldest. We had one that was on an LDS mission 
and to a home and all of a sudden we were all four of us back together for the entire summer and I it was very unexpected <laughs> I'm sure that's another podcast <laughs> we had we have five the little older and a lot of them were back together and there's there's some good stories I mean it was a blessing I mean we have children in their 20s that were home for six weeks or two months or three months I mean never would have had that I mean it never would have happened uh, they may say, "Thank God, it never, it never should have happened." <laughs> but it was, it was. There were some, there were certainly blessings in the darkness, um, um, and uh, as Bishop Jake says in the book, pain always leaves a gift. Uh, it is really hard to find it sometimes, but nonetheless, I think this is our moment as we pivot. I hope to remembering the gifts of this period and trying to come back. Uh, as as Daryl Green says, not in the same way we started. Yeah, that's that's a, a lesson. I think if if we don't learn, um, yeah, it, it may have been in vain. Yeah, shame on us. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna be right back with Tim Shriver talking about his book, The Call to Unite: Voices of Hope and Awakening. We'll be right back. We are back with Tim Shriver. Uh, We're talking about the book, uh, Call to Unite, and we're also talking about some of the incredible things that he's been doing um, in his career. One of the things that I read in this book that really touched me and really kind of on a religious, you talked about there's there's religious people talking and and non-religious and all kinds of voices in this book. But one thing that really struck me, because there's a, there's some religious text in in my own personal life that says um if ye are not one ye are not mine mm-hmm. and so this idea of unity is is really powerful but we also see and have seen through the pandemic as well as you know preceding and i'm sure you know mm-hmm. post pandemic this idea of our sense of tribalism do you think that our sense of tribalism is less or more powerful than our sense of of this Unity. trying to be unified. Well, I think uh, I think tribalism can be heard two ways. I think one way it's heard is uh, insular, angry, defensive, aggressive, superior. Another way, though, is it's just a place to belong. It's a place of common ground. It's a place of common faith, common practice, common food, even. Cultures build up places of belonging that make us feel safe and make us feel welcome and make us feel whole. The problem with tribalism is when tribalism is not inclusive, when it's violent and angry. That's the form we have now. Uh, And that happens when people feel threatened and afraid, where they feel their sense of belonging is being threatened by others destroyed by others, compromised by others. Uh, That's the result of contempt and demonizing and misunderstanding all the way back to the lack of encounter, the lack of proximity, the lack of meeting grounds. Our view is that uh, both of these draws are common to the human experience, the desire to belong to someone else. Look, I mean, my daughter just had a baby. I can watch that little four-day-old. What does he want? He just... Uh, he's not happy unless he's on his mother in his mother's arms, right? He wants 
He doesn't want, you know, uh, you can say that that's a, a particular period in life, but it goes for all of us. We're always looking across the table, hoping someone sees us, hoping we can find a place. This is what children want in schools. They look up at their teacher, uh, Ms. Cox, Mr. Schreiber, you know, hoping those big eyes, can I find a receiver? Can I find a meaning? So I think we want to belong and we want to belong to as big a community as we can fashion. What makes us under so much duress right now is that contempt has become a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And contempt feeds that sense in which you're about to be threatened. Abby, I'm coming for you. Tim, I'm coming for you. Uh, and that makes us more likely to respond with violence. What we're hoping, you know, you, you've so beautifully championed our unified champion schools movement. This is a chance for people with children with intellectual disabilities and non-disabled children to play together. Why? To reduce the sense of threat. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm different from you. I am different from you. Yes, I am. I have Down syndrome. I have autism or I don't. So we're not the same, but we can still understand each other. We can still cooperate with each other. We can still be at one with each other. So I hope there's a future and I dare say we, we, we have no chance but to try to figure it out. There's a future where the hunger for oneness isn't against the hunger for your tribe. It's just that we can build a kind of an inclusive tribalism. Uh, you and I come from different faith traditions. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, there's millions of faith traditions if you actually think about it because there's millions of people. Uh, I may be called one thing, but I have a different version of my religion than maybe the person in the pew right next to me. Yeah. So I, I hope that the the future we seek um, allows for our tribes to be strong but doesn't allow for them to be contemptible. Mm, that's incredible. Um, Arthur Brooks, who... I think is one of my most favorite authors. Um, really, just an incredible. He's doing incredible work. Um, obviously, my all-time favorite book is is you know one of them is is Love Your Enemies, yeah. and um, I think that's what we're talking about here. He says um, in in your book, he says one thing that psychologists have found, and this is what you were talking about a little bit, is that the opposite of love is not hatred; it's fear. Yeah, and if you feel fear, the answer is more love. Right, right. <laughs> Which it's, I think is—it's it, it, it's not. I don't think intuitive to most of us. That's right. And I think when when you feel fear and you hear the voices around you saying, "Turn that fear to hatred," mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're all vulnerable to being swayed, right? But we need more of Arthur, you know, and this is why I, th- I love the book, Abby, and I'm glad you bring it up again. I hope people will pick it up at the kitchen table, you know, because a lot of us have trouble talking about love with our children even, right? Yeah. You know, our teenagers. We have trouble with the divisiveness that we may feel within our families. 30% of Americans have broken up uh, a relationship within their own families over the division in our in our country. Um, 30% of Americans just a few weeks ago said they wanted their state to secede. That's one in three Americans don't want to belong to the union anymore. So in a time like that, what I hope is, you know, people will just go on Amazon. I don't say I don't make any money from the book, so I'm not saying this for personal gain. Go on Amazon and send the book to someone. Uh, Order the book for a book club. Uh, 
use it. Invite these people. Invite Arthur Brooks into your conversation. Let him be a part of our conversations because he'll help us find a way when you feel fear to have more love. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it, it's absolutely key. Um, I don't want to end without talking about um, Castle. Yeah. Tell us about what it is and why it's so critically important. Yeah. Well, thank you. So Castle is um, just over 25 years old, uh, founded with uh, a group of colleagues um, based on the work of extraordinary scholars uh, over many years. And it stands for the collaborative, and that's an important word because this is not an organization trying to run a field or control a field, but to build a collaborative, a collective group of scholars, practitioners, and policymakers to work on the integration of academic, social, and emotional learning, C-A-S-E-L, Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. And so the first question people ask me is, what is social and emotional learning? Social and emotional learning is the process by which we develop our knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of relationships. Our inner life, which is emotions, how we tell the story to ourselves of what we're experiencing, and our relationships. And most people will agree that the most important things determining your happiness, not to mention your productivity at work or your capacity to serve your country or your, or your community or your capacity to be a good husband or wife or son or daughter or uncle or – uh, almost everybody will say, well, the most important qualities you need for that are emotional and social skills and gifts and supports. But we never had a curriculum. We never had practices. We never trained teachers to teach self-regulation or empathy or decision-making or problem-solving or goal-setting or mindfulness, these kinds of things. So now we have the chance to build a whole field where we can actually teach our teachers because our teachers are hurting too. And a lot of times the pain of a teacher becomes the pain of a student. The bias of a teacher can become the bias toward a student. Uh, the struggles of a teacher can be the struggles of a student. And yet the support for the teacher can be the support for hundreds of students and families. So CASEL is trying to help teachers, principals, superintendents, political leaders like yourself, trying to help us find the best practices to strengthen the social and emotional development of our children and our school structures so that uh, we can optimize their happiness, their academic achievement. I mean, here's one of the great things we found, Abby. If you do good social and emotional learning programs, evidence-based programs, guess what goes up? Test scores. People go, wait a second. I don't want that in my kid's school. I want my kid to learn the basics. Guess what? They will learn the basics if they feel connected, if they feel belonging, if they feel safe, if they feel purpose. That's what we teach in social and emotional learning programs. That's what we hope teachers can learn for themselves and for their students. Well, and I also think, don't you, I assume you hear this too, but um, CEOs, companies, I mean, they're they're saying we can, we can teach them to program a computer, but we cannot teach them to work in a group or That's right. we connect got, with, a, with a co-worker. So they're begging for They're begging. For we, 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 I was with the head of HR at Google said that exact thing to me. He said, look, coders for us are a dime a dozen. And if you don't know how to code, we can teach you. We can't teach belonging. We can't teach people how to lead a group. We can't teach people how to support one another. That's what we want our students because when they know how to do that, they can learn anything and contribute to the company. So that's Google. I mean, for the rest of us in the, in the more ordinary technological spaces, 
uh, these human skills are critically important. And, you know, Arthur Brooks, you mentioned in the book, but others, uh, Robert Waldinger's in the book, you know, it's a hundred year long study of happiness that they've done at Harvard. And at the end of the study, people ask, well, what is the single most important determinant of happiness? And he says, it's the easiest question I've ever, I'm ever asked. The only thing that really makes much difference is the quality of your relationships. So off we head into the world and we don't expect to teach anything about relationships. And yet it's the most important determinant of our capacity to flourish. It's time we change that. I agree. I totally agree. Let me let me conclude this way from this really incredible conversation. Um, your sister, Maria Shriver, mm-hmm. writes the epilogue to the book, and I just think this is so beautiful. She says, um, we are seeking the same things. We are all seeking dignity. We're all seeking joy. We all want to be seen and to be valued, to be understood, to be loved. And, to, and this is the miracle. Even though we all want the same things, there doesn't have to be any competition <laughs> around us, um, among us. Uh, because of these things we want are not material goods. They are spiritual gifts. We don't need to fight because the supply is infinite. We don't have to battle for them because when we get them, we can't help but share them. The more love I receive, the more love I give, the more these the more those around me feel joy, the more I'm surrounded by joy. We are not separate. We are one, which I think is absolutely beautiful. That's my sister. <laughs> Isn't she amazing? She's uh, She published the book. Um, she's got this fantastic Sunday paper, uh, which I encourage people to subscribe to, uh, that she publishes every week with stories. She says, news above the noise, uh, very much the same thread as we've got here in this book. You know, the, these voices are growing. That's the good news. In our culture, uh, as much as the voices of hate and contempt are strong, the voices of hope and awakening are growing. I hope this book, I hope your leadership, I hope this contribution on the podcast can help strengthen someone, even if it's just one person listening, to um, to, 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 to have a little more hope again and, and trust that uh, walking down the street, you walk past someone... Um, raise your eyes, maybe uh, give a smile. Uh, They're looking for the same things you are. And maybe we can just uh, share that a little bit more, as Maria says so beautifully. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. This has been absolutely an honor to to have you on the show today. Um, So thank you for being a friend. I'm so grateful.